open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. This is the only prophetic book uh, in the Old Testament that is actually focused on the person, on the prophet, and not on his message. Most of the prophetic books have to do with what the prophets are saying, the message that God gave them, but Jonah focuses on the person himself, on the prophet who is, as it turns out, as we'll see, is running away from God. God pursues him even as he's running away. God continues to pursue him, which is, that's, that's the point of the book, that's the theme of the book, is that Jonah is being pursued by God, and we are tracing his spiritual arc from running to hiding to then repenting and returning to God, and the book ends on uh, the necessity of making a decision whether to follow God or not, and we'll deal with that as we go. But the book is really about God's mercy, God's grace, God's pursuit of sinners, including Jonah. And so the question we're asking is, how deep does God's mercy run? How deep does God's mercy run? Not just to Nineveh, this pagan city, but also to Jonah himself. Well, let's look at the beginning of the book. This is Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Page 774 in the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, please have one of ours. We'd be thrilled if you took it home and used it. Page 774 in the Black Pew Bible, Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Everybody has that? Everybody has their Bibles open? Let me read it for you. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful that we have your word. We pray that now by your Holy Spirit, You would open the meaning of this text to us and that you would apply it very specifically to our hearts and to our lives. We pray that we would be changed because we have heard from you this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's dive in, friends. One of many, many water references we're going to have today. Two questions I'm asking this morning. I'm asking the question, why does Jonah run? This is a crucial question to understand the book, of course. Why does he run? And we'll see, of course, how it correlates to us. We're runners as well. And then the second question is, how can we stop running from God? Why do we run or why does he run? And how can we stop running from God? Okay, so who was Jonah? He was a prophet He ministered in Israel. This is the northern part of the kingdom. This is after the split. If you're following biblical chronology, the kingdom uh, split into two parts. In the north, there was Israel, uh, capital of Samaria, and that's where Jonah ministered. This is during the reign of Jeroboam II, and uh, this is uh, about kind of mid-7th century B.C. Now, we, we get this information 
when he ministered and who he ministered with, very specifically from 2 Kings 14, and we'll look at that passage a little bit later. That's the only other Old Testament reference to Jonah, is 2 Kings 14. Now, Jonah's job as a prophet was to simply hear from God and then relay that message to other people, maybe kings, maybe cities, but other people that need to hear from God. This is typical for a prophet to do that. God speaks to the prophet, the prophet speaks to the people. But here, when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's message there, again, this is typical for God to speak to his prophet and tell him to do that. God says, go, and Jonah says, no, is what's happening here. The question is, why? He's a prophet. He's supposed to do that kind of stuff. He's used to doing that kind of stuff. His whole ministry is is speaking on God's behalf and relaying his message to various people. Why does he refuse to go to Nineveh? Well, frequently, we explain Jonah's running away by simple disobedience. He didn't want to do what God told him to do, and so he didn't do it. And of course, disobedience is involved. But Jonah, remember, he's an obedient guy. This is a religious person, a church-going person. This is a moral person. He is used to obeying God. So why does he disobey him now is the question. I'd like to suggest to you that this particular command to go to Nineveh and preach God's message there does not fit Jonah's view of who God is and what God should be doing. Through this command, God is revealing himself to Jonah. And Jonah is not sure that he wants to serve a God like that. He had an idea of God. Remember, he's a religious person, moral person. But when God gives him this message to that city and tells him to go... Jonah says, I am not sure that my God should be saying this and my God should be doing this, so I'm going to run. There's something very dark in Jonah's heart. God exposes it and seeks to transform it. So let's see if we can unravel what is going on in the darkness of Jonah's heart, even as he hears this command and rejects it outright and runs in the opposite direction. Nineveh is to the east, Tarshish is to the west, this is completely opposite, he goes to the other side of the world almost to avoid doing what God asks him to do, and I would say to avoid God himself. God tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, arise, go to Nineveh. I think arise is important here. There's a sense in which God is interrupting Jonah. There's a sense in which Jonah is doing something and then God says, get up, drop everything, and leave everything here and go do what I'm telling you to do. There's a change in direction. Jonah was not going to Nineveh. He wasn't planning to go. And God says, arise and go. This is 500 miles away, a huge life change for Jonah. Stop what you're doing, drop everything, get up, arise, and go to the city of Nineveh. Thomas Chalmers is a Scottish preacher, and he uses this analogy to describe what I think Jonah is feeling at the moment when God is speaking to him and telling him to arise and go to Nineveh. Chalmers says that we often treat God as an unwelcome visitor to our house. 
He's an unwelcome visitor who interrupts our plans. And this is what Chalmers says. To admit him, meaning God, to admit God with all his high claims and spiritual requirements into your mind would be to disturb you in the enjoyment of objects which are better loved and more sought after than he. It is because your heart is occupied with idols that God is shut out of it. It is because your heart is after another treasure. It is because your heart is set upon other things, whether it be wealth or amusement or distinction or the ease and the pleasures of life, we pretend not to know. But there is a something which is your God, to the exclusion of the great God of heaven and earth. The being who is upholding you all the time and in virtue of whose preserving hand you live and think and enjoy is all the while unminded and unregarded by you. You look upon him as an interruption. When God speaks to you, when God speaks to Jonah, it feels like God is meddling in your life. It feels like God is changing something in you, changing something in your life that he really shouldn't have no reason to address. You see, you can be religious, church-going, moral, and still largely shut God out of your life. Now, Jonah was fine as long as God told him things he agreed with and told him to do what he wanted to do anyway. But when God says, arise, drop everything and go to Nineveh, Jonah says, I am not sure I want to be dealing with a God like that. Twice our text says that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's deliberately trying to avoid talking to God. He is deliberately putting as much distance as he can between him and God. He wanted nothing to do with a God who would even suggest that going to Nineveh was a good idea. Does anybody agree with me that that's a common experience for us? That you go about your life, you do your religious things, you live a moral life, and then God speaks to you, and it feels like an interruption. It feels like a visitor coming to your house while you're having dinner. It's a telemarketer calling you. They used to do that when we had landlines. I don't think they do that anymore. I've not gotten a call from a telemarketer in ages. But it feels like that. It feels like God is just interrupting your plans. Knocking on your door when you have better things to do in the house. Most of us want a God who would silently nod in agreement with our convictions. Is that true? Anybody identify with that? We want a God who cheers us on as we pursue our own ambitions. As long as he agrees with me, as long as he's going along with what I'm doing, I'm okay with that kind of God. We want a God whose main desire is to help us achieve our dreams. One writer said, he calls this kind of religion, this kind of attitude towards God, the safe middle ground of self-serving, domesticating deism. Let me say this again. The safe middle ground of self-serving, domesticating deism. 
It's a perfect description of most people's religion. As long as God doesn't meddle in my business, I'm okay serving Him in some way. As long as it contributes to my ambitions and my dreams, I'm okay if God is involved with me. I like Him as long as He serves me. I don't want him to be too involved. I'd rather him to be kind of distant a little bit, but come in when I need him and support me and encourage me and inspire me. May I suggest to you this morning that if you have this idea of God, this middle, safe middle ground of self-serving, domesticating deism, if you have this idea of God, it's not God that you want. You're not actually looking for God. What you want is a divine pet. This is who you want. This is what you really want. You, want. you want some comfort. You want some entertainment. You want some support. You want some company. You want to play with him when you have a minute of free time. Now, if you have this kind of idea of God, which I think most of us do, I think this is, this is typical of, of us, of people. When real God shows up in your life, When he starts speaking to you about things you don't want to talk about, we run like Jonah. We run away. We see that in church. Everything is fine until God begins to challenge our sexual ethics. And then we run. Everything is great until God begins to question our politics. Then it's a different, different deal. Maybe we don't want a God like that. It's great until God wants to look into how we spend our money. And then it gets dicey. We see people, if you've been around church enough, you see people abandon everything and run and avoid people from church and stop coming and sever their ties to the church and anything religious because God has challenged them on something. Now, what happens typically is they have been able to go along for this whole time and do all these religious things and and maybe be a member of the church, and yet they've never felt challenged by God. So as long as it, it contributes to my ideas, as long as God is supportive of me and what I'm doing, I'm perfectly fine going through the motions, perfectly fine attending church and, and participating in giving and serving But when God speaks to us and he says something we don't like and you realize that's who God really is and he is pushing on me and for me to remain in relationship with him is to know him like that and to adjust to him and change my views and change my lifestyle, then we drop everything and we run. I think this is what's happening with Jonah. Now let me give you a quick test of how you can know, how I can know what my idea of God is, okay? When you're reading the Bible, and I hope that you are reading the Bible, and not only Christians read the Bible, many people, many nominal religious people read the Bible. So when you read your Bible, when you maybe consistently daily read your Bible, my question is, do you find that it confirms what you already believe? Do you find that it inspires you to pursue your dreams and follow your heart? Or do you find that it challenges you and disturbs you and puzzles you 
and changes you and exposes your idols. If that is not happening, if you feel like you get it all and it seems to make perfect sense and it seems to fit perfectly into your life, let me suggest you'd be better off reading the Post-Dispatch. You'd probably get more out of it with this approach. But if you're reading the Bible and you're saying, I don't get this passage. I don't understand how God would say this. Why would God demand this of me? And it's a struggle because your heart is getting exposed. You might be dealing with the real God. Maybe. Because if we're coming to Scripture and all we hear is what we already know and we already agree with, you know what that says about you and about me? We don't really need God. We don't need a Savior because we kind of have it figured out. The Bible might confirm what I already believe, but if it doesn't challenge it, if it doesn't change me, I'm already okay. I don't need it. Might as well find something more entertaining to read. Jonah is disturbed by this new vision of God. This God is making an unreasonable demand on him. He's saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Jonah doesn't think Nineveh is great, by the way. It was a very important and powerful city, and Jonah knew that. But Nineveh was not great in Jonah's eyes. Now, sometimes when you read a commentary or you hear a sermon, you would hear that uh, Nineveh was a threat to Israel. And Nineveh becomes a threat in the next generation. At this point, Nineveh is not really a threat. It's an emerging superpower. They still don't know who they are. They're just kind of your typical pagan, uh, violent, idolatrous city. Jonah knows that, and so he doesn't understand why God is involved with Nineveh. Why is God, the God of Israel, talking to the prophet in Israel and telling him that he should go and preach in this pagan city. And it was really, really pagan. One commentator says, he describes Nineveh as the very citadel of heathen glory, monarchy, and worldly pride and power. Jonah is a prophet of Israel. Things are good in Israel. God reigns in Israel, and yet God tells him to go to Nineveh. Jonah thinks that God is operating outside of his jurisdiction. You know how in all the cop shows, and I mean all the cop shows, there's always that one scene. They come to the scene of the crime, and there's various agencies coming, right? There's always the FBI is there, the local police is there, some, some shadowy government agency is there. You don't even know who they are. And they're all arguing about their jurisdiction, Who's supposed to take that case? Is it mine? Is it yours? Oh, that's not yours. You have no authority here. We're taking over. Usually a guy in a suit says that, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a question of jurisdiction. Who has authority where? And Jonah doesn't think that God should have any say in what happens in Nineveh. That's, that's a pagan city. The citadel of heathen glory. Why, why get involved in Nineveh? And this is where we're starting to see the darkness in Jonah's heart. You see how the real God is exposing the idolatry in Jonah's heart. 
Jonah, it turns out, is a bit of a bigot, a bit of a nationalist, a bit ethnocentric, a little racist. He doesn't think this God that he knows and supposedly loves should have anything to do with pagans. And the real God that comes into his world, that speaks to him, doesn't fit this world. He doesn't fit his understanding of who God is supposed to be and what his life is supposed to be like. So Jonah runs. Now, it gets even more interesting here, friends. This is enough. Of course, you can say, well, he doesn't want the real God. He'd rather prefer an imagined version of God. He doesn't think God should be involved with pagans, only with the good Israelites. But it gets even worse. Later in the book, Jonah actually tells us exactly why he ran. This is even more disturbing. It's not only because of God's interrupting him or God's unreasonable desire to be involved with pagans. There's something much darker in the prophet's heart. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah 4, verse 2. Now this is after he, and I'm hoping I'm not spoiling anything, but he ends up going to Nineveh eventually. And he preaches judgment, and Nineveh believes. There's a mass revival. They all come to God, and Jonah is not happy about that. So in verse, four, uh, in verse 2, chapter 4, Jonah says, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's biggest problem was his suspicion at the time when God was speaking to him that even though God is sending him to proclaim judgment on Nineveh, God might, after all, forgive them. That is his biggest issue with God. As God is saying, go to Nineveh, their evil has come up against me, Go to that great city and, and, and speak against them. This is a, a message of judgment. Jonah is thinking, but you are too forgiving. I know it. You're going to relent. I knew then that you were going to change your mind and you're going to save those pagans. And I, have, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's amazing that Jonah gives us an accurate picture of God. He says, and these are, these are commonly used in Scripture, this, this phrase, to describe who God is. He says, I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows that's what God is like. And yet he says, you're, you're too gracious, too much. And so I don't want to be a part of this, this mission that might just might end up saving the whole pagan city of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want a real God, and he certainly has a huge problem with his grace. Now, where did Jonah get this idea that God might forgive Nineveh? We actually know exactly where it comes from, and I'm going to show you. This is 2 Kings 14. I'd like you to open your Bibles to that. 2 Kings 14, verse 23. This is the only background information for Jonah in the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus quotes Jonah and talks about him in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, this is the only other parallel passage we have to Jonah. But this tells us a whole lot about Jonah's mindset and why he is suspicious 
that God might be gracious to Nineveh. Let me read it for you. Kings 14, 2 Kings 14, 23. <clears throat> In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. That's, that's Jonah's king. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a bad king. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, anytime you get compared to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's bad news. That's the king who really, he really kind of set Israel on that whole course towards idolatry and, and some really bad wickedness. So this king was like that, had the same name, in fact. And he made Israel to sin as well. Evil king reigns a long time, a lot of evil that he does. But listen what God does uh, through Jeroboam. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So what we have here, you have an evil, wicked king, and God speaks a message of peace and a message of prosperity and expansion to his people. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. So there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This is a fascinating story. You have an evil king through whom God works to bring peace and prosperity to Israel. And Jonah is the one who gives that message to the king. Jonah says God will restore the boundaries of Israel. Israel expands. There's tremendous uh, military victory and economic prosperity under Jeroboam II, who is an evil, wicked king. Jonah puts it together, and he says, this God, <laughs> this God must be something else. He, he can be gracious to a king like Jeroboam. He can bless a nation like our nation. That's all in the back of his mind. That's his ministry. And so when God speaks to him and God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak against it, he's thinking, I know what God did in Israel. I bet you he's going to do the same with Nineveh. I bet you he's going to relent. He's going to forgive them too. And so Jonah has this idea of God, and he's wrestling with that, and he's seeing that, that God is working uh, unreasonably graciously. That God is doing these things that are not expected of him. He's not judging people he's supposed to be judging. He's blessing his people who are idolatrous and wicked. And now he sends them to the pagans. And who knows what God is going to do with those pagans. Because Jonah experienced firsthand that God is gracious beyond his expectations. And so he's wondering, if God is that kind of God, who knows what he's going to do next. What is your Nineveh? What is a group of people, a place, a class that you think God shouldn't forgive? Now, you may believe God can forgive them. God is gracious after all. But who do you think God shouldn't forgive? Because Jonah is certainly thinking God shouldn't forgive Nineveh. And he runs, so he is not participating in that mission. 
I was at Aldi this past week, which is a common experience for me. This segment is brought to you by Aldi. <laughs> Better things for less. I was at Aldi, and, and there was a lady, uh, and, and she just wanted to talk. I mean, she just, she was there to socialize, I think, more than buy groceries. She was telling everybody her story, how she pulled into the parking lot, and somebody was just honking at her, and she's like, I'm just trying to finish listening to my song. I don't mean anybody any harm. Why are they so mean? And then she said, and somebody told me, you should pray for that lady that was honking at you. And, I'm, and she goes, and I'm like, uh-uh, she's not going on my prayer list. <laughs> so who is that person for you that is not going on your prayer list? <laughs> who is the Ninevites in your life that you're saying, yeah, God can forgive them maybe, but he really shouldn't, and certainly I shouldn't be any part of that forgiveness. Now, let me make one final point about Jonah running away, and then we'll, we'll finish up and talk about what God does to, to stop us from running. When you reject God, when we avoid him as an unwelcome visitor, when we consider his demands unreasonable and his grace scandalous, that will inevitably lead to an inconsistent life. Now, let me show you what I mean here. An inconsistent life. Jonah confesses later on in the chapter in verse 9, he confesses that the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He confesses that. He believes that. And yet, he runs from his presence. Does that make any sense to you? He says, God made all of this. He's the God of heaven. He's the Lord. And yet, I'm going to go to Tarshish so I don't have to talk with him. Like God can't be in Tarshish. He has an orthodox understanding of God, and yet he acts like a pagan, like God is some local deity that is confined to that particular nation. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because there are pagans there, you know, but he goes to Tarshish, which of course is also a pagan city, and it's farther away, it's, it's farther outside of God's jurisdiction. That doesn't make sense. He doesn't think that God should care for pagans, and yet he gets into a ship full of pagans and ends up, in fact, saving their lives later on in the story. It's, it, this is a weird thing because he's acting like a pagan, and yet he affirms his identity as a worshiper of the Lord when asked. But he is acting completely inconsistent with that. When we have the wrong understanding of God or when we refuse to accept the right understanding of God, of course our lives are going to be inconsistent because you don't have a consistent worldview that includes and in fact is centered on, on who God really is. Now think about our culture. I'm going to give you some examples. Let me know if you agree with them. We sing in our culture, we sing about eternal love. Oh, so many good songs about eternal love, right? Love that will just never pass. This is such a powerful force. It's absolutely transforming my life. And yet, we can't stay faithful to the object of our affection. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't to me. How can we proclaim the power of love, and yet we can't stay with the same person for longer than a week? We affirm life. One of the best compliments you, you can give to, to a TV show in a review is to say it's a life-affirming TV show. We like that. 
and yet we kill babies and the elderly. How does, how does that coexist in the culture's reality? How can we put those together? We say life is great. Live life to the fullest, right? And then we say, well, not, not for these people because their life is terrible, so they might as well not live. It, it, it doesn't make sense. We value authenticity, and yet we are more than ever confused about who we are. We say, you got to be authentic, be who you are, but who are you? We don't know. And so we're, we're grasping for these definitions of, of who we are. We tout the importance of sexual consent, and yet we reject the institution of marriage that is designed to define sexual consent. It doesn't make any sense that we can hold those, those two ideas at the same time. We say, you're beautiful just the way you are. And yet, we Photoshop pictures of models in our magazines. How does that work? Where is consistency? How can we affirm both things at the same time? We hold anti-violence rallies, and yet... We make movies and watch movies. We make video games and play video games and write songs and listen to songs that suggest very strongly that violence is, in fact, the solution to our problems. Isn't that strange? Secular commentators are pointing that out. They're saying, there are articles written that are saying, how can somebody from, this is going to sound so bad, from Hollywood, I, I'm not on a crusade against Hollywood, I'm sorry, but how can somebody from the world of making movies can be anti-gun violence when half of the movies, the plot is you solve your problem with a gun? How do you put those together? You see, it's, there's tremendous inconsistency. We say we care for those who are oppressed and disenfranchised, and yet we elect arrogant, self-serving politicians. How do you put those two together? The inconsistency is incredible, but we know why it's there. Because the reality that our culture affirms, that many of us affirm, does not include God and doesn't include, certainly doesn't include the right view of God. And if you don't have God in it, you cannot stay consistent. There is no other consistent framework to work with unless you have God in it. Jen Pollock Michel says, I am a Christian for all sorts of reasons, and we can agree with that. We have stories that there's so many things that God did to bring us to Christ, and there's many angles you can take. And she says, I'm a Christian for all sorts of reasons, because I met Jesus when I was 16, because my parents raised me in a Christian church, because I believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, because I find credibility in the sacred scriptures, all good reasons. And then she says, I am also a Christian. Because I think Christian theology has explosive, explanatory power. That's a good phrase. Explosive, explanatory power. Especially for describing the human condition. The Christian faith tells me who I am in ways that seem most accurate to my human experience. What she says is, is when you come to Christ, you realize that things now make sense. And you realize that you can have a consistent framework of reality. 
Because the gospel tells us who we are. It describes, it, it, it exposes the inconsistency of being made in God's image and good and yet falling and being sinful. It tells us that's what it is, and it tells us the solution for that tension. So why does Jonah run? He runs because the real God is challenging his idea of who he thinks God is and what he thinks God should be doing and how this God should be. He runs because he doesn't like how scandalous God's grace is. Now, in some sense, he runs to see how far God's grace can reach. And we'll deal with that next week. It's, it's, to me, it's fascinating to, to, to try to figure out what's going on in his heart. And I wonder how much of it is, is he, he's just like a kid who's acting out and saying, I think God loves me, but I'm going to push the boundaries and see how much he loves me. Will he follow me if I go to Tarshish? Will he save me out of the storm? He's testing God's grace. For all his religiosity, all his morality and conservative values, Jonah has not accepted God for who he really is. And the tension of the book is, will he? Will he? Will he accept God for who he is? Will he embrace the real God? Will he change? And we'll have to see what happens in the next few chapters. Now let's answer the question that has relevance to all of us. Maybe you can identify with Jonah. Maybe you look at your life and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to run sometimes. Maybe you're running right now. Maybe you've had that encounter with the real God and he tells you that what you believe isn't what you should believe and how you live isn't how you should live. And he is pushing you, and he's pressing on you, and, and you run. Are you running? It's a great metaphor for sin. Sin is running away from God. He's running towards you, but you are running away. You're shutting him out. How can we stop running? Do you feel the, the, the restless heart in you? Do you have that? Am I the only person that, that is prone to wander? Like the, the hymn says, Lord, I feel it, right? Do you feel it? Prone to wander? Do you feel that? That push inside of you that says, maybe I should just run away. It's too hard to figure out this God. He demands too much of me. His demands are unreasonable. And what's the deal with this grace? Scandalous. He would forgive people like that? Maybe you too are prone to leave the God you love. How can we stop running? We must look to the one who came to seek and save the running and the lost. Now let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. This is good. This is exciting. That should move us. That now we're dealing with the real issues. How can I stop running? How can God bring me back? Maybe I am like Jonah and maybe he is calling me back. So how does he do that? Well, Jesus too left his jurisdiction. The father said to the son one morning in eternity, he said, Arise and go to the great world, to the wicked world, to the world which I had created, which rejected me, the world which I love. Arise and go and bring my love to them. So Jesus loved his jurisdiction of heaven, was born into our world as a human baby. Friends, imagine what that means 
the God of God, light of light, this being that has power to create the worlds, says, I'm going to leave this place, leave the angel's gaze, and go into this world. I'm going to become like that world. I'm going to be born as this helpless, limited human child. And Jesus, too, was an unwelcome visitor. When Jesus came, remember, Scripture tells us he came full of grace and truth. Who would reject someone who is full of grace and truth? We would. And we did. He came and we shut the door in his face. He was an unwelcome visitor. And we said, we'd rather stay in darkness than have the light come in through this door. And potentially expose maybe our sins and our mistakes. And potentially maybe tell us that we should change. So we shut the door. And we said, we know what we're doing. And we don't need you interrupting us. We have dinner plans tonight. Thank you very much. Maybe you can come back another time. Or better yet, tell me your website. I can check it out later. That's my trick for getting rid of people who come to my door. John 1 tells us that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. He made this, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so Jesus came full of grace and truth and was turned away as an unwelcome visitor. And yet he continued to pursue us, and he showed us the extent of God's grace. How far does God's grace extend? is the question. That's Jonah's question. That's our question. We see on the cross of Jesus just how deep his mercy runs. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, vast, vast love beyond all measure. Can't measure it. It's always going to be scandalous to us that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That is how deep his glory, his, his glorious mercy runs, that he would give his son to make me a wretch, his treasure, to transform me, to put his grace on me. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. I am the runaway. I'm the fugitive. Call out among the scoffers. I'm one of the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Anybody following me so far? Is this good news to you? Does it make you happy that God has pursued you even as you're running away? the spiritual fugitive from God, and God pursues you in Christ, and he shows you just how big his grace is for you, just how great and vast his love is for you. And when Jesus lived among us, when he suffered and died as a sacrifice for our spiritual wanderings and rebellion and idolatry, our dark hearts and our swift feet, when he rose again, having returned from his journey into God's wrath, this is what he did. He deconstructed our sinful inconsistency in order to offer to us the beautiful paradox of redemption. Let me say this again. I worked on this. 
So I would appreciate a little response on this one. In the gospel, Jesus deconstructed our sinful inconsistency, broke it apart, in order to offer to us the beautiful paradox of redemption. When you look at Jesus' life, it's, it's full of contradictions, it's full of tension, it's full of inconsistencies, but somehow all of that works to bring redemption to us. And when you look at his life, you don't see the dysfunction, you see the beauty of what he's done for us. Let's listen to Augustine as we, as we close. Augustine, the great African theologian, says, The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast. You see these inconsistencies, contradictions, tensions? That he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline, might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that courage might be weakened, that security might be wounded, that life might die, This is describing what Jesus did for us, deconstructing our inconsistency and creating out of that the beautiful paradox of redemption. To endure these and similar indignities for us, this is Augustine still, to endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us unworthy creatures. He who existed as the Son of God before all ages, without a beginning, deigned to become the Son of Man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil, and although we who were the recipients of so much good at his hand had done nothing to merit these benefits. This is the beautiful paradox of redemption. Jesus runs after us, enters into our inconsistency, and brings us back to God, the real God, the way he really is, by transforming us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we affirm this morning that he did, in fact, come to seek and save the lost. We are the lost. We are the wandering. We are the runaways. He came for us. He came to bring us back. He came so we could stop running. Maybe this morning you need to stop running and turn around to face him and open the door of your house to him. And say, I need you. I need the real God. I don't want to keep playing this religious game until everything falls apart when I see him and he speaks to me. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to turn towards you. I'm going to embrace you as the one who had pursued me. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood.